Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is actually in the Old Testament. You may not be uber familiar with it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Right? Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. All right, so, or we'll just splash the words on the screen for you. When you came in, you should have gotten um, one of these. And if you didn't get one of these, you can grab one on the way out, or you can just walk out as I'm talking right now and grab one. These are the, the, the booklets we provide for you. One, it's to, to help you in your personal study of Daniel. At Four Oaks, this isn't just a talking head, Max Headroom, you know, from the 80s where I'm just talking, moving my lips. We want you to engage and study God's Word for yourself. You can also take sermon notes in here and then bring these as well to your community group. And they'll, they'll be the basis of discussion questions and all those sorts of things. Now, you'll notice if you open up your book on page one, for some reason is my picture. Okay, let me just kind of explain the, the context for this. This is basically a, vor, a very poor attempt at humor by our crack production team, okay? And you need to know I strongly disapprove, okay, of what they have done, okay? As we're looking at Daniel, think just for a second, what did you think, if anything, when you heard that you, we were going to be studying this book? Maybe you're a, a late great planet Earth refugee from the 70s and 80s, and you thought about end times, and apocalyptic fires of judgment and prophecies, you know, because after all, Daniel to the Old Testament is what Revelation is to the New Testament. You know, one of the things I thought about was a set of videos that Susan and I used shamelessly to show to our kids on very long road trips so so they would zone out, okay, and, 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 you know, go to sleep. Um, we, We showed them, did we not, babe, the Cedarmont kids, okay, the Cedarmont kids, we're basically a, a, a troop of children singers from where else? Tennessee, of course, okay? And they would sing these old spirituals, okay? Dare to be a Daniel. Did you ever sing this in Sunday school? Dare to be a... Edit that out, Daniel. Okay, right? So, so all of us have like certain memories, whether it's felt board and the fiery furnace in Sunday school. But, but, but to be honest, probably a lot of us come to books, Old Testament books particularly, like Daniel... With, with sort of for, what I would call formulaic, moralistic ideas of what it's all about. So in other words, Daniel obeyed God. Daniel was faithful. So God blessed Daniel. God protected Daniel. God delivered Daniel from the lion's den. You too be faithful and God, like Daniel, and God will protect you. Now what's the problem with that? I don't know about you, but that formula doesn't seem to be working very well for me. Probably not for you either. I mean, you, you may be here this morning saying, I have been faithful. I, I, I've been good. I've run hard after the things of God. But something in the formula has gone awry. My marriage doesn't seem to be working. My children don't seem to be working. My body doesn't seem to be working. My finances don't seem... To, to be working. And so we come to books like Daniel and we read all these, these, these stories of glory and we just say, that doesn't happen for me. God has just, that, that might have been the way that he worked in the Old Testament and another time in another place where he showed up and did cool stuff, but no more. Now here's, here is what I would like for us to aspire to by the grace of God works over this next ministry season. I, I am praying that God would Get your heart in this book 
and just intertwine them all together. I want your roots, your biblical roots, my biblical roots to go deep. Now, we all gathered here last Sunday, uh, Midtown, Four Oak, and Clark, one congregation because of, of all the craziness um, with the weather. And, but what, one of the fascinating things to me, driving around Tallahassee, is that you look at certain trees that are still standing, and you wonder, how in the world is that tree still standing? Okay? That tree should have been in the middle of my bedroom right now. How, how has that not happened? On the other hand, you drive around, and you see massive trees stately trees, okay, glorious trees, and they're gone, and they're obliterated. And we say, what, what happened? What, why this one and not that one? I'm not the arborist here, but obviously there was something defective, something in the roots, something inside that we could not see. Folks, the storms of life, if they haven't come for you, they're coming, Some of us are right in the middle of those storms. And the time to grow in strength, the time to develop roots is right now. You see, Daniel was not given to teach us cute little moralistic lessons. Daniel was written to give us hope. You hope, me hope, the people of God hope. I don't mean cultural wishful thinking, like I hope I don't pass out during this game, which for some reason was scheduled at high noon, okay? Like, like, so not that kind of wishful thinking, but I'm talking about biblical hope, sure hope, certain hope. That's what I think the book of Daniel was written to do. I think it's what God wants to do for us, for me, for you. So let's, let's dive into it together. Daniel 1, just seven verses today as we introduce this book. Exiled, but Hopeful. That's our, that's, our, that's our theme. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Let's pray. Lord, here in these seven verses, we have darkness. Lord, we have despair. We have trouble. But Lord, we also have incredible hope. And the hope doesn't seem quite as obvious as the darkness. And so, Lord, that's why we need eyes to see, ears to hear, 
Lord, we want you to take this book over this next season and wrap our hearts and our minds and intertwine it all into your word so that the roots go deep. So, Father, we're praying these things because we, we, we know that they're for our good. And we know what is for our good is for your glory. So, Lord, do a work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Just two, two kind of themes that we're hitting. Theme of exile. So, so we are exiled. Daniel was exiled. Secondly, but with hope. Now, if you look up exile in the dictionary, you'll, you'll note it says expulsion or separation or to be banished. Now, let's be honest. Many of us as Christians, the evangelical church, we, we are feeling increasingly like spiritual exiles, are we not? Okay, it's, it's, you, you, you read the blogs, you read the books, you listen to the podcast. Um, it's very clear we've lost the cultural wars. You know, we're, our sexual ethics and norms have sort of gone bye-bye. We have the erosion of religious liberty. Um, some of you think that we have the choice this election season of voting between Hitler and Voldemort, okay? And I'm not going to say which is which. That's for you to decide. I personally do not think that, but that's for another sermon. We think we're having a bad day, okay? As they said in Despicable Me, okay? A bad, bad day, our exile. I think that, and it's not to minimize our exile. We're going we're to work our way back around to it. But I think it will be helpful, first of all, to put our exile or feelings of separation or loneliness or being out of step or being sort of like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a foreigner in a strange land, increasingly so. It's helpful to put those feelings into the context of Daniel's exile. So it says in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, third year, so that, that puts us at about 605 B.C., or thereabouts. Now, if you can bear with me just for a little bit of time, it's going to be important for us to give the, the context here of what was going on in the life of Israel. Remember that Israel was a unified kingdom of, under David and then his son Solomon, but then the kingdom was divided into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south where Jerusalem was located. In 722, about 150 years prior to this, um, the northern kingdom was conquered by the empire of Assyria. And I think we have some sort of nifty slide that'll show us what happened there. Yeah, the Assyrian empire, they're the big arrow going in. Okay, the northern kingdom, the Israelites, they're going out. Those were the 10 tribes of the, of the northern kingdom forever scattered and lost. Okay, so a lot of times in the New Testament where we're reading about New Testament writers writing to Jewish Christians who were scattered in the, in, in the, in the, in the diaspora or dispersion. This is what they're talking about. They, they never, ever returned in mass to their home land. This, was, this, was, this is what happened when the Assyrians showed up. But little Judah, down there at the bottom, sort of hung on for dear life until, until a new bully on the block showed up. The bad boys of Babylon. I just made that up. Can we, can we go with that? Okay. Led by Nebuchadnezzar, who was extraordinarily brilliant. He was responsible for overseeing and designing one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, okay, which is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. But he was extraordinarily cruel. 
And let's, get, let's, let's flash, flash this next slide up, and let me tell you kind of what, what happens here. He would wipe out men, women, children, families on a whim, as we will see in the book of Daniel. But when, when Babylon came on the scene, it was like Dirty Harry or Clint Eastwood walking into the bar, okay? And everybody is looking for cover, okay? They are diving under tables because the, the bully of the block has arrived. And so Israel had a choice to make, okay? And the, their choice was either maybe we should trust God who delivered us from the Assyrians or let's choose wrongly and let's go to another bully on the block, that's Egypt. See, down there at the bottom. Except here was the problem. The bodyguard they hired to protect them was not as tough as, as the bodyguard that was coming to beat them up. And so Babylon just wiped everybody out. They defeated the kingdom of Egypt and Carchemish up there at the top of the screen, and the Babylonian Empire thus reigned, okay, for another season under Nebuchadnezzar. And what began, and this introduced a 20-year period where, where Babylon slowly began to tighten the noose around the neck of Israel. Now, ultimately, see, see, Israel became Babylon's vassal state. Eventually, Israel didn't, didn't play by the rules well enough, and Babylon came in and just wiped Jerusalem out, destroyed the temple, deported the Jews. But here in this story, we're 20 years prior to that. And, and Babylon has come in, and, and they've done kind of what the standard operating procedure was for countries who were subjugating other countries at the time. They took some of their best and brightest from the court of Israel, and they hauled them back to Babylon to serve in that court. And Daniel was a part of that group. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were a part of that, part of that group. And, and, and look at what it says in the text. They were chosen out of the royal family. They were part of the, the nobility, the house of Judah. They were youths. That means they were probably 15, 16, 17 years of age without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom. I mean, this was the creme de la creme. And they did this to show Israel who was boss. You don't mess with us. And if you keep messing with us, we'll wipe you out, which is what they did eventually. But here, this was a great humiliation to Israel because here their best and their brightest were, were sort of stripped from their homes taken to a new land, and totally given a completely new identity. It served to strengthen Babylon and to weaken Israel. Now, to fully understand the darkness that is represented in these first seven verses, because this is just, this can be kind of typical Sunday school fare. Oh, yes, Daniel was, was taken to the new thing. You know, D Daniel gets an opportunity to, or to, to earn his explorer's badge, right? This is a great, okay, this is a great adventure for Daniel. Would it have been cool to be Daniel? That's kind of what we think sometimes. Let me tell you, not cool, okay? Not cool. Let's just let's, we'll look back at the text. When it says that these young people were, were stripped away from their homes, that's what it means. You know, we have a group of senior high students at Rock the Universe right now, Universal, and parents, in order to send them along, you had to sign a permission slip, right? Hopefully you did. Um, I don't even want to go there. But anyway, hopefully you did. No permission slip here. Dead of the night, 
walk into the palace, yanked from their families, wrestled from their homes, never, ever to see their parents again. Them never to see their children again. If any of you have seen Schindler's List, there's a poignant scene in one of the concentration camps when the children have been separated from the parents. They're kept in a different part of the concentration camp. And one morning to their horror, the moms wake up. And what do they realize? Their children are being carried away in armored vehicles. And they, and they start sprinting. They start running across the field, up to the barbed wire, doing anything they can to get over and to reclaim their children because they know that certain death awaits. So if you kind of understand a little bit of that, you understand what's going on here. This is, this is no grand adventure. See, when Daniel arrives on the scene, his suffering is just beginning. See, see, first, they changed his name. So Daniel in the Hebrew means God is my judge. But they changed his name. Now it means um, Bell's Prince. It sounds like the Prince of Bel-Air, okay? But Bell's Prince, okay? It was named after a Babylonian god. So it's like having a friend named Beelzebub's mate or something like that, okay? And they changed the names of, their, of the, all these kids, they, they, they indoctrinated them in the dark arts. So, so the Babylonians were, not, were notoriously adept at studying astrology and stars and all those sorts of things. And so when it says they were enrolled in, their, in, their, in this curriculum, it was the darkest of the dark arts. And for Shinar, Daniel uses that word on purpose. Because for any Israelite, they would have known that was the personification of evil in itself. They were being taken to the capital of Babylon. And just think about what this was like. Daniel serving in the house of the king, in the house of the Lord, stripped away, never to see his parents again, enrolled in the dark arts, has his identity obliterated, and taken from literally God's house to Satan's house. And it says that Daniel was coming to serve in the king's court. Unless you think this is idyllic, Okay, um, this is not Pippin and Mary in the court of the king of Gondor, you know, eating meats and crafting ballads. Okay, that's not what this is. It says that Daniel was enrolled in the troop of eunuchs, and and we don't want to get too graphic, but it is in the it's in the text, so we need to understand what what this means. See, the king would have a harem of women available, hundreds, at his beck and call. And he would have young men serving in his court. And guess what? That wasn't going to work. Okay? Young men entering their sexual prime, that was not in this harem available. So in order to protect his court, these young boys were made eunuchs. And, we, and, 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 if, and if you're not really following along here, I was going to say go discuss this afterwards at lunch. But maybe not at lunch, okay? So... so and this was horrible. This meant that, that Daniel was now an asexual being. This, this meant no lineage for Daniel. Um, no family line. Okay? For a Jew, it would have been incredibly shaming. No heir to carry on his name. Daniel is having a bad, bad day, right? 
And, and all of this was in fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 39. Now listen to this. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Now this was written 200 years before this happened by Isaiah. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now listen, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But maybe the ultimate humiliation, at least for a a Jew, was that it says that the articles from the temple court, from the Holy of Holies, the temple in Jerusalem, were taken, hauled off, and stuck in the the temple of a pagan idol. And, and, And this was the ultimate humiliation. See, we don't understand this very well. We say, well, why would that be of all things so humiliating to David? Okay? See, guys, in the ancient culture, a god and its people were wed together. And if you were conquered as a people, that meant your god was weak. It meant, it meant, and for Daniel, that meant Yahweh has no power. Yahweh's fame is, is obliterated. His reputation is diminished. And, and if you want to understand this, see, in our culture, we don't get, we don't get that with, with gods and religion, but we do get it with sports, don't we? Okay, we do get it with sports. So go on Twitter sometime when your team is losing, okay? And, and notice, okay, how people talk about their teams. They use words like what? We. We won. I'm sorry, you didn't win anything, okay? All right. The team that you like won. We won we lost. Hey, I was watching a game the other night, a Tennessee game, about a week and a half ago on a Thursday night. We were playing Appalachian State, supposed to win by a gazillion points. It looks like we're about to lose, and what am I feeling? Shame, okay? Because I knew I was going to have to come in here and walk the walk of, of embarrassment. This was the life of God's people. They were shamed. Now, let me say this. Although our exile, and, and, and I use that term broadly, whatever exile you find yourself a part of personally, or we do as a church, or as God's people as we rub up against the culture, even though nothing probably that we will ever experience will compare to this, it doesn't mean that you and I don't taste exile on a daily basis, if we are walking faithfully with the Lord. Susan and I were talking last night, and she reminded me of this story. There was a girl in our high school group many moons ago where she and 10 of her friends um, got together, and they were going to see a PG movie at the theater. And, um, and, and they told all their, their, their parents they were going to see a PG movie, but were they going to see a PG movie? Oh, no. Right. No, no. They, they were all, they concocted a scheme to go see the R-rated movie instead. And this girl's father got wind of this, okay? So he just hustles, hustles over to the theater. He's driving in. He's going to set things right. He's going to figure it out, put everybody in their place. And he walks in to the R-rated theater, doesn't see his daughter, goes over to the PG theater, and there she is sitting by herself, Okay? Guys, that's real, okay? For a high school student, that is real. 
See, see, exile is not just getting carted off. Exile is vulnerability. Exile is loneliness. Exile is being on the outside. Exile means being out of step. Exile means doing what's weird, which God calls biblical, okay? Puts us out of step with what the world calls normal. See, and, and, and the reason we wanted to spend so I wanted us to spend this first portion of our time really delving into the experience of Daniel in exile is that if you don't understand the sheer darkness of what's represented here, you won't be able to see the grace and activity of God that is all over this book. And, and, and if you can't see the grace and the hand of God and the activity of God all over this book, you'll probably have a very difficult time seeing the grace and activity of God in your life, in your darkness, in your loneliness, whatever that represents. So, so here's where we want to spend these last minutes together. Where did Daniel find his hope? Okay, where is hope in this passage? Because let's be honest, as a cursory reading, this does not sound particularly hopeful. Amen? <laughs> not particularly hopeful. Now, here's, what, here's something that's, that's, that's interesting. Daniel wrote Daniel. Okay? That's, that's your first quiz. Okay? Daniel wrote Daniel. But Daniel did not write Daniel when this happened. He wrote Daniel at the end of his life. So Daniel is about 17 or 18 now. He writes this when he's maybe 70 or 80. And it's Daniel who's now having to reflect back on that time and to interpret it and to characterize it. And if anyone is qualified to speak about where hope is found in exile, is it not Daniel? But as we go there, let me ask you, how do you find, define hope for your exile? And I'm not sure what, what that represents for you. Maybe it's some relationship, or maybe it's a job situation, or maybe it's about hard, hard choices you're having to make as you prioritize the things of God in your life. Don't know what that represents for you, but, but Daniel's qualified to speak to it. So exiled, second point, but hopeful. Where is the gospel in this text? Let's go back to the text a second. Verse 2. It can seem like a throwaway line, but it's indeed powerful. See, see, Daniel could have looked to a variety of places to explain his context. The evil of Nebuchadnezzar. The, the geopolitics on a global scale. Okay? The, the, the cultural winds of one empire taking up another. There's a lot of things, guys, humanly speaking, that can explain our feelings of exile. Lots of things culturally, lots of things personally. But David goes right to the top. Here's what he, um, Daniel goes right to the top, verse 2. And the Lord gave. I want you to just think about that for a minute. The Lord gave. Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand. And that not only affected a nation, 
but that affected a man named Daniel in the most powerful of ways. I was with one of our daughters in the store the other day, and I struck up a conversation with, with, a, with someone who is a history major pursuing their Ph.D. at Florida State University. And I asked him what that was like being a history major, you know, facts and people and dates. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, we don't really care about that kind of stuff anymore, okay? <laughs> Nobody cares about the facts of history. We just are concerned about the story we want to tell with the facts of history, the interpretation of facts. What do these events mean? Who has the power and the authority to determine the narrative? Daniel says this, I'm going to provide you as God's people the interpretive grid. I want to give you the story behind the story. I want to give you the deeper underlying meaning that the events of human history are not random. Okay? This is not taking God by surprise. Things are not out of control. See, Daniel is wanting to say, God is not peripheral to human history. And to use a Tennesseeism, can I do that? He's smack dab in the middle of it. You like that? Smack dab in the middle of it? He's controlling the events of our life. Look at Daniel 2.21. Daniel says this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. Do we have that verse, Daniel 2.21? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Now, I love the way Larry Osborne puts this into layman's language, okay? This is a great quote by Larry Osborne. He said, God is in control over those who are in control. Now, people of God, let me just ask you, do you believe that? I mean, I don't mean like intellectually believe it, but have you taken that into your heart? Because if that is true, okay, then this ha- there's a massive implication, and here it is. See, our circumstances don't determine our ultimate outlook. Our interpretation of our circumstances do. And Daniel is providing the key. See, Daniel's saying, you see, I'm giving you a piece of secret knowledge, church, God's got this. God is in control. God is taking up. God is setting down. And guys, we are, we are solely tempted not to believe this. Okay? Just in the way we view election and politics, for example. This is a great quote by, by Andy Stanley. Okay, let me just work through this. This is really good. He says, all of you who are 45 and older, look up here. I guess here. Okay, look up here. Okay, look up here. Many of you have grown weary and lost heart, and the reason is you have fixed your eyes on a political system. Is that you? And you are growing weary, and you need to knock it off, and I'll tell you why, because you are scaring the children, okay? (laughs) I think that that is so awesome, okay? Not random. ISIS, hurricanes, fires, wars, shootings, death, prodigals, Where in your life, Four Oaks, do you need to be reminded today that the Lord gave? Now, that doesn't answer all your questions, okay? But I'll tell you what. It sure is the beginning of hope. See, I was talking to my dad last night on the phone late, and today's the one-year anniversary. My mom passed away. 
And my dad and I were just talking about God's grace to, to us through the process and what this last year has been like, and it's hard to believe it's been a year and all those sorts of things. But we had to confess, we're still straining to see God's plans and purposes. I mean, we get a glimpse every once in a while, but we're still straining, saying, God, what was up with that? God, what in the world? Why? How? What, what's going on? But you know what? As hard as that question is, what would make it completely unbearable is if that he was not in the center. That he, was, that, he was, that he was outside the scope, that he wasn't at the center of human history, that he wasn't directing our activities, that he wasn't Lord over all. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but guys, it answers the most fundamental question. God is in control of those who are in control. And, and here is what this text really begins to bring alive to us. See, not only is God in control of those who are in control, but God is working the events of human history out distinctively to accomplish his purposes in the people of God. I want you to think about that for a second. See, th- th- there was something big going on here, globally, geopolitics, one empire over another, but God was actually orchestrating it to bring his people, to draw his people back to himself. And let me explain how this works. Deuteronomy 30 predicted that Israel would go into captivity, but it also told them what they were to do once they found themselves in captivity. And this is really important because a lot of you will walk away and say, now what do I do in my place of exile? What do I do in my place of darkness? There might be a lot to do, but, but Moses is going to tell us the first thing to do, the most important thing to do. Look at Deuteronomy 30. When all of these things come upon you, in other words, when you're deported, when you've when, when you find yourself in this strange land, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where your Lord has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then, 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 the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. That doesn't mean that he was going to give Daniel a family and put everything back. That's not what he meant. He'll restore your spiritual fortunes. He'll have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. See, God was orchestrating all this because he had a singular purpose in mind. And it's that as the Israelites experienced life outside of God's care and protection, they would be reminded, oh, we need God. Let's return to him. God did this by giving a glimpse to them of their life apart from him, and it tutored them back into relationship with God. Because I don't pretend to know all the factors involved in your current state of exile. How much of it was your fault? Someone else's fault. Your sin? Someone else's sin. Think suffering? Because that's a real part of exile, suffering. Daniel did not do anything to warrant this kind of exile. But boy, when we get to to Daniel 9, we'll find out. Daniel sure owned this. He said, God, we've sinned against you. 
God, we've been presumptuous. God, we have wondered. God, we have strayed. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Have mercy upon us. Guys, whatever our circumstance, God is always willing and ready to receive your repentance and to receive mine. Always ready. And, and, and I don't know the factors of how much our, my situation is according to my sin and personal responsibility. That's not the point. I just know, God, search my heart. God, restore me. God, show me. God, give me your grace. God, give me your mercy. God, please let me repent for what belongs to me. And then I just entrust the rest to you. There's, there's nothing else I can do. Here is where hope lies for Daniel, Brooks. God is good. And he is unchanging. And he always stands ready for the heart and the affections of his people. And here, here's what's very cool about this text. See, guys, if God is faithful to carry out his promises of judgment, how much more faithful will he be to carry out his promises of mercy? How much more? Two quick application points and we're done. Here are two opportunities for us these next weeks in two prayers that I have for you and for me. Here's the first opportunity. The Daniel series is an opportunity for you to clarify your citizenship. Okay, people in the Gilbert household know I've, I've gotten on the Hamilton the musical kick, okay? And so I'm listening to that soundtrack all the time. And, 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 and part of the, 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 the relational tension in this Broadway play is the rivalry between Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson. These guys are ideological polar opposites. They do not like each other. They stand for things that are totally antithetical to one another. But then there's a man who's in the middle, and his name is Aaron Burr. Okay? He's in the squishy middle. And his motto is, from the, and I quote from the song, you need to talk less and smile more, and don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Just play it cool. Don't show your cards. Don't, don't announce your allegiance. And here's what's interesting. As much as Hamilton and Jefferson absolutely hate each other, guess who they hate the most? Aaron Burr, because he stands for nothing. Guys, it's been easy for the last century for Christians to be spiritual Aaron Burrs. And what we are going to find in the book of Daniel is that there is a spiritual conflict at the heart of even the most mundane choices in life. See, Daniel brings into stark clarity, this is what an exile crisis always does. It brings into stark clarity whose side are you on. We say, Pastor Paul, that sounds military and warlike. And No, no, no. Okay. Daniel, the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And when exile happens and when the darkness descends, it brings clarity in our hearts. Who are you going to align yourself with today? And Daniel said, as dark as it is for me, I'm aligning myself with the living God who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the king. 
Use this series for us as an opportunity to clarify your citizenship. Number two, and we're done. Use this series as an opportunity to grab the gospel anew. I want to show you something in this text I had never seen before, but I think is, is pretty amazing. When you consider that the articles of the temple were carted away to the desolation of Babylon, we have to consider that God had voluntarily, for a time, set aside his fame, his reputation, and his glory to the nations. They all looked at Israel in derision. (laughs) Your God is weak. He is powerless. He cannot deliver you. Let's be honest. This is an apparent setback to the fortunes of the triune God. We have to say, why did God do that? Why did God do that? For you. For his people. Because he loved them. He wanted to bring them back to himself. And if that sounds vaguely familiar, it should, because it's the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and me on the cross. He set aside his reputation. He set aside his glory. He set aside his honor. He set aside his status. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was an apparent setback, was it not? It was was a humiliating defeat for the disciples in the early church. He says, I'm doing that because I'm after something larger, and that's you, and that's your heart, and that's your soul. Folks, that's fundamentally what we're about as a church family, the gospel. That is the good news. And Daniel, if nothing else, is a gospel book. Hope for the people of God. Hope in exile. I want to call you today, as we come to the table to, to stake your, put your stake in the ground someplace. Okay? We're all going to find something to put our hope in. We're all going to use some sort of interpretive grid to make sense of our life and history and circumstances and what God is doing or what we think he should be doing and what he's not doing. Where will you put that stake today? And it says, put it in the hope of the living God. As our ushers come forward, we're going to take communion together to remind ourselves anew that God is in control of those who are in control. That the good news is that Jesus set aside his fame and his glory for a time to die so that you and I would know him. And that is our ultimate basis of hope. I invite you to go before the Lord just the next minute or so. Prepare your hearts as we come to the table.